and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it is the 86th. I know 86 is a US slang term for denying someone something or getting rid of something, so I'm not sure how that applies to the Toyota 86 car. If someone's getting rid of one, please feel free to give it to me. 86 is also the agent number for Maxwell Smart. I was going to say one of his catchphrases, but chances are there are many people out there who haven't even seen the show. More evidence, I'm getting older. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I guess I could have made the show 86 minutes long, but it's not. Funny how we've crept up from about 30 minutes each week to around an hour now. But it's great value because the download is exactly the same price, free. I suppose the down I suppose the downside is that's twice as much of me. Anyway, before we get on to this week's news, on this week's podcast we have three guests: Anna Pierce, director of sustainability at Tate and Lyle. Bob Savage, product application expert for cheese at Royal DSM, and Ari Trasdahl, co-founder and CEO of Crisp. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTLFC Stone. As for the week, well, now I have a little bit more sport to watch, so that's good, although it's still a little lacking in a bit of atmosphere. I see that some teams are piping in canned applause and cheering, a bit like the old sitcoms. Hopefully they don't have cheering at the wrong time when the other team scores. We're also seeing a little bit of easing of lockdowns in various places, although when I go and do the weekly shopping, there are still plenty of people who either don't know what social distancing is or they really don't care. Who knew shopping could be so dangerous? Here in Western Scotland or Southwestern Scotland, depending on your point of view, it's been cold, hot, dry, wet, calm and windy. And the next hour it changes again. Although I do have to say that one thing I did miss about the UK when I didn't live here was the changing weather and four distinct seasons. It's also been a busy work week. I've been doing lots of interviews and setting up more, to the point where it's been a little tricky keeping up with it all. It hasn't helped, to be honest, dealing with two PR companies that have staff with the same last name and initial, both emailing me at around the same time to set up interviews. Obviously, I'm easily confused. If you just write, please turn over on both sides of a piece of paper, I'm good for hours. Or you can put me in a circular room and tell me to sit in the corner. Let's get to this week's news, some of which you may have missed, and all of which you can catch up on on DairyReporter.com. GEA has launched new filling technology for extended shelf life beverages, and by extended shelf life we don't mean that the shelf it's on is made of more durable material. Aptar has introduced a new closure for lids in the infant formula market, and it says it can be done with one hand, which is fantastic when the other hand is full of baby. In the US, Canpac is bottling surplus milk to support hunger relief, Arla is seeing increased food service demand in Denmark, Pre-Scouter has published a coronavirus testing report. DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences has launched its new Chymostar cheese coagulant, and we will have an interview about that next week. The 2020 World Dairy Expo in the US has been cancelled for this year. Canadian dairy company Saputo revenues are up despite the coronavirus impact. Arla is using less plastic through a lid change for some of its quark and skier products. Friesland Campina Ingredients launched Biotis Health and Wellness Ingredients 
and nanoparticle concerns have prompted Prinova to introduce new silicon dioxide free infant formula premixes. All of these and plenty more on DairyReporter.com. And so let's move on with our first guest this week. And the first guest is Anna Pierce, Director of Sustainability at the global company Tate & Lyle, which recently introduced some new and wide-ranging environmental targets and commitments. I wonder if you could maybe start off by just giving me a few of the new targets that the company is proposing to implement over the next few years. Sure. We look at our environmental targets as greenhouse gas reductions. We look to beneficially reuse our waste and then reduce our water use. So from a greenhouse gas perspective, we're looking to deliver a 30% reduction in our scope one and two emissions. So that would be by 2030, really with an aim to hit 20% by 2025, right? To have some kind of interim goal to help shift that a bit, if you will. And then a 15% reduction in our scope three emissions. So scope one is our direct emissions. Scope two is emissions from the energy that we're procuring. And then scope three is all of our indirect emissions, so emissions from the whole value chain process. And we're also looking to eliminate coal in our facilities by 2025. From a waste perspective, our waste targets are, again, ambitious, and it's to 100% beneficially reuse our waste by 2030. And then, again, that interim market 2025 to reach a 75% beneficial reuse. And on the water side, this is the first year that Tate & Lionel has set a water reduction goal, and we're aiming to deliver a 15% reduction by 2030. That certainly is the goal that we're stretching the most to achieve. What was the motivation for introducing all of these targets, and how did you decide on them? Because I'm sure that some of them have economic um, implications? They absolutely do. You know, part of it is Tate and Lyle is shifting to be a more purpose-driven organization, and they're committed to improving lives for generations, and sustainability is a natural fit into our purpose. So we have three, we call them pillars of purpose. It's supporting healthy living and the products that we make, building thriving communities in our community outreach where we live and work, and then caring for our planet. So that natural fit along with this internal discussion of what should we do versus what can we do really helped as we were setting the targets. We kept talking about in 10 years when we look back, would we view this target as ambitious as we would have hoped at the time? And sometimes we would come back and say, you know, that's not enough. We can do more. We need to do more. Um, So that was very much the mindset that we were in as we were setting these targets. It needed to be ambitious and they needed to be something that we were proud of. Obviously, Tate & Lyle isn't a small company. Uh, Do you have to sort of temper the ability to do those with the realism of the situation? I think in some cases, the answer is yes. And I think in other cases, it's whether or not there's a positive return on investment, there does come a moment where collectively we said, we need to do this and we need to find a way to do this. And then the good thing about the environmental targets is there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of options to pursue in something like water reduction that might not have as an attractive as a return on investment as you would see in 
changing fuel sources, right? Getting out of coal. If you could explain to me what the the volume of corn relevance is to the sustainable acreage. <laughs> sure, sure. Peyton Isle procures 1.5 million acres worth of corn globally every year. So in 2018, we started a pilot partnership with what is now Trutera, what is formerly Land O'Lakes Sustain, in a sustainable agriculture program on 300,000 acres. A year later, we expanded that partnership to include the full 1.5 million acres. So we work with Trutera and with growers and with members of our value chain, our customers, to advance conservation practices in support of sustainable agriculture on a full 1.5 million acres in the Midwest U.S. Trutera has their own software that's called the Trutera Insights Engine. And the software combines precision agricultural software with conservation practices. So it lets the growers that are enrolled in their program run scenarios of adopting conservation practices and making sure that there's a return on investment in making those changes. Because the changes are significant and they're literally betting the family farm on changing a farming practice that it will both be good for the environment and keep them running in a profitable way. So in combination with the software, there's also the support of all of the ag retailers in the Truterra network. And the ag retailers are really the trusted experts that the growers are coming to for agronomist support, soil sampling, they're buying seeds, they're buying nutrition, All of that goes into the support that the growers are getting as they're trying to make this journey on conservation that they've been on for decades, right? This isn't a new, it's not a new idea, but it certainly is about using that technology to help them make more of a sure bet on making some of these changes. So we're not asking them to implement one particular conservation practice like cover crops. We're asking them to make positive improvement in their farming practices, leaning into conservation practices, but that's right for their farm and right for every single field on the farm. So Trutera collects 100% of the data on the acres enrolled. So next year, we'll have our first year-over-year results on a full 1.5 million acres. So we'll be able to talk about the number of conservation practices implemented, the amount of greenhouse gases that were reduced, um, nitrogen use efficiency, soil quality. And those metrics help us measure, is our program and our effort making a difference or do we need to potentially do more or do something else to help the farmers as they're working to implement those conservation practices? I noticed that you will be measuring the progress and, and putting it in the annual report every year. Is this something that every year, every year or every certain period of time you'll look to modify and reevaluate the goals? And because I, I think sometimes the danger is that okay, you're you're ahead of the game and you think, well, you know, we're definitely going to meet that target. Would you then say, well, we're definitely going to meet it, so let's extend it a little bit? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I. I think for Tate and Lyle, there's this culture of continuous improvement. So sustainability is part of our environmental health and safety program. 
which is on a journey to EHS excellence, right? This continuous improvement mindset. And along with that comes us constantly checking and asking the question, are we doing enough? Can we be doing something more? Should we be doing something more? And when we look back a decade from now, is it enough? So that's a very frequent conversation that we have with our senior leaders and certainly something that I discuss when I meet with the board to talk about sustainability and where we're at with our targets. So it's, it's absolutely top of mind. It's hard to set a target 10 years out and think this is going to be great. This is going to be amazing in 10 years. A lot changes in 10 years. So I think it's important to have a realistic approach and just be transparent. You know, if, if we can do more, we're going to do it. And if we're having a hard time with one of the targets, we're going to say, hey, we're really working hard at this. And I think that's, that's part of it is just to bring everyone along with us in that story and in that journey because we're all in it together. How important is sustainability in your actual product portfolio? I mean, not, notwithstanding all these changes that you're trying to make. We believe that every member of the value chain, right, the growers, our customers, the consumers, everyone has a key role in safeguarding the environment. They just do, right? It's our planet. That's it. So in saying that, the consumers are more and more conscious about their own environmental footprint, and that includes the products that they buy. In offering programs like our sustainable agriculture, we can offer that to customers and for the equivalent of the corn-based products that they procure. So we help our customers be more transparent with consumers in how their products are made, what that looks like from an environmental footprint standpoint. And, you know, it also enables our customers to help meet their own sustainability ambitions. So it's very much something that we believe it's the right thing to do, but is also something that can help everyone make a difference in the products that our consumers are ultimately buying. It's become incredibly important. For sure. And and I think, as you said at the beginning of that, the end consumer is now looking for the companies to be able to make claims and to be able to verify those. Yes, absolutely. And as a consumer myself, I mean, I, I read labels, I think about what I'm buying, I expect companies to be responsible. So I think that's very quickly just becoming the way that we operate, certainly in the business world. It's more than Tate and Lyle and us feeling a desire to be responsible and really say, if we're going to improve lives, let's actually do it. I think being a responsible business is very much an expectation at this point by most consumers. I think that one of the the hardest parts of that is communication, because obviously you don't necessarily communicate directly with the public because you're selling ingredients to a company that then uses them in their own products. So the communication part of it is hard for for you, but also for the for your customers because also they don't want to be seen to be that this is just a marketing tool. It has to be more than just something that's on the surface, you know. Yes, and that was that was really important as we were designing the sustainable agriculture program. You know, the industry standard is collecting data on ten percent of the acres and then extrapolating that to the other ninety percent we had a very difficult time thinking that that was enough data and then asking a grower to make a decision on their family farm 
based on that. Um, it just it didn't add up for us, and it didn't feel we we had this conversation frequently as we were looking at options and the conversation that kept coming back was how is that improving their lives? We're asking them to make this huge jump. That doesn't feel like we're improving anyone's life. That feels like we're chasing data. And that's not what this was about, right? It's not about the data. It's about now that we have 1.5 million acres in the program. Now, what do you do with it? So we enrolled those 1.5 million acres. We got the data on the 1.5 million acres in four months. And for us, that let us come back and say, let's not chase acres. Let's chase conservation. Let's chase working with customers to improve the program for the growers um, and really help to make that connection, which is certainly a different approach. How will those be monitored? Will that all be done internally or will there be sort of independent third parties monitoring and verifying your, your data and your, how well you're doing to meet the targets? There are certainly a lot of moving pieces. So every year we set and publish the criteria by which we measure our our environmental performance. That criteria and all of the metrics are audited by a third party. And the third party issues a limited assurance statement. Both the criteria and that limited assurance statement get published on our website every year at com. So again, it's important that people are able to see what are we tracking, why are we tracking it, how are we tracking it, and then the third party is really coming behind us and saying, yes, this is actual data. These are results that you can stand on. Um, With our sustainable agriculture program in the corn with Truterra, Truterra provides us those results from their systems, and they have an audit component as well. And and I think as well that often people see these announcements by companies that they, they've announced environmental targets and and that there's this kind of impression that, okay, we've announced the targets and let's come back in 10 years and see how we did, but it's a continuous process. It is. It is. So we participate in a variety of environmental, social, and governance disclosures. Um, we participate in CDP and Ecovatus, which are CDP, certainly both customer and investor focus. Ecovatus is entirely a customer-focused disclosure. So they have the opportunity to ask really detailed questions to help them answer their own environmental footprint across that value chain again, and a few others. So Dow Jones Sustainability Index. It's important that we're participating in those disclosures and really pulling back the curtain a bit and saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working on, talking about projects that are have begun and have started So it's not just a a number that appears magically in the annual report, but we really take our investors and our customers through that journey of how did we get there? Because it certainly isn't something that you set the target and then you kind of sit back and wait a decade. Now that we set the target, the real work has begun, right? Now it's time to, to act and start to implement the plans that we've been talking about for the better part of the last year. And are these global targets? Because obviously you're operating in many different countries. I've been to a few of your plants. So you're working across <laughs> different jurisdictions. And, and so there's a lot of there's a lot involved with a global company. Yes, yes, they are global targets. Every site has individual site targets. So they each have something different to work for based on their contribution to our greenhouse gas emissions or our 
water consumption or waste generation. And then that that's rolled up into our global results. So it's absolutely a global target. Everyone everyone has their part to play in this, certainly. That also makes it a little more meaningful to the individual facilities that you have is that they feel that they're contributing and that, that they can have their own successes as part of this. It certainly does. So I think with the pillars of, of purpose, there's there's a lot of effort to make sure that every employee feels a connection to it. So it's not something that we say, we're improving lives through generations, and one of the ways that we're doing that is by caring for our planet, and you have someone in procurement saying, I have no idea how that applies to me. Every function has a connection to what it is that we're doing, and every facility does, because everyone has a role to play to get in that continuous improvement mindset and start to see results. It can't be the efforts of one facility or one function. It really is something that we all need to take responsibility for. And in these times, asking people to be environmentally responsible is not a difficult question to ask. I don't get told no. I get asked more frequently, can we be doing more? Have we thought about this? Have we thought about this recycling program? Have we thought about reusable cups, right? Everyone's thinking about small things that add up in big ways, as well as really big ideas and what kind of a difference that can make for Tate Mile. Next, it's to cheese and mozzarella to be precise. Royal DSM has just introduced some new cultures for boosting the yield and resource efficiency of mozzarella cheese production. And to tell us more is Bob Savage, product application expert for cheese at Royal DSM. You've just launched this new product. How did coronavirus impact on that? Did you sort of discuss maybe not launching it? or? Um, yeah, that's a good point. Our original plan was to do a physical launch at the World Cheese Show in Wisconsin. And uh, inevitably, that didn't happen in uh, in April. However, we have made a decision that we were going we're going ahead with the launch anyway, because all of the background work was done. The product was in place. We did quite a lot of uh, we'd done a lot of beta testing, what we call beta testing. So commercial trials at factories before lockdown. So we'd already developed all of the information and experience and knowledge we needed to go ahead with with the launch. And so with the modern technologies we have, we felt that it was perfectly okay and still to go ahead with the launch. Makes sense as well. It's it's not like it's a product that the bottom's completely dropped out of in terms of sales anyway. I think even though the food service has died a little, I think the retail is still booming for cheese. So that's one positive. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, milk is still being produced and cheesemakers are still making cheese with it. So from that perspective, yeah, it's still very much uh, business as usual in that respect. What were the key drivers behind the launch in terms of why it's so important for DSM? There's two things, really. One is that, as you know, cheesemakers are always looking to increase the amount of cheese they can get from their milk. And we're always investigating ways we can help them. We've worked very hard on developing uh, new coagulants, for example, like our Maxaren XDS in the past. And um, the uh, mozzarella market particularly is um, the biggest sector globally. It's highly competitive. And so the main drivers are maximizing efficiencies and conversion. We looked at ways that we could uh, modify and improve our cultures to be able to do that. And also in North America, 
there's a demand for a higher moisture mozzarella as well for pizza cheese. So we were driven also by that need in the market and to create a product that would do that. How long were the cultures in development and how have they been doing in trial? Yeah, I mean, we actually started to work on this project probably about two and a half years ago, maybe even more in terms of the initial thoughts about and planning. These things don't happen overnight. There's a lot of work goes on behind the scenes to select and get the product right. And then obviously to prove them commercially. So we've done a lot of work in a range of different environments or conditions that is used for making mozzarella, whether it be um, the open table types, the enclosed processes, also different formats like string cheese. So it was just proving that it would perform and behave on a commercial level in all those applications. So that's the latter part, if you like, of the last six months, I suppose, um, we're involved in that side of it to make sure it was fit for the market. Are you seeing demand for mozzarella rising still in the US? And, and how do these cultures help with that demand? It is still growing in the US. Inevitably, there's a push to convert, as you know, to get the most efficient conversion as possible. And so the demand is for getting as much cheese out of a, a specific cheese dairy as possible. And so that keeps that kind of keeps the costs down. So we're increasing yield. The other thing, though, that's important is that the product still performs in the same way and everything most of it is going into prepared meals whether it be mozzarella or what else so the functionality is key and so alongside just making sure that the cultures perform in terms of the cheese make so to speak it's also how it cooks on a pizza and so functionality is key so a lot of work's gone on in that side the other big growth area of course is um, in the east and certainly places like china and india for example, it's also growing over there. So there is the demand outside of North America is also growing quite significantly. And um, uh, pizza cheese seems to have really kind of ticked their taste palette somehow. Yeah, it's a pretty versatile cheese in that respect. So I think you can understand why developing markets would pick up on something like that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And also, of course, the cheese makers, um, it's it's a quick win. You know, you can make it today and it's on the pizza within a week or 10 days. So but also it needs to be able to be stable. So when it's being exported over to places like China, it needs to have stability over shelf life as well. What are the benefits of the new cultures when you compare it with other products that are currently on the market? Yeah, I think the number one benefit compared with what we'll call classical mozzarella cultures is its ability to retain more moisture within the protein matrix of the cheese and by doing that it increases the yield and we're talking around at least one percent increase in moisture and more and what does that do to the characteristics of mozzarella well what we've seen from all the commercial testing that we've done is that the functionality um, in terms of stretch and shreddability and all the rest of it uh, from day one and through shelf life trials is very good and I think that's mainly due to the fact that we do have a very low proteolytic activity in the product. The additional moisture content, we haven't seen it having any negative effect on the behaviour of the cheese in a, for example, in a pizza situation. What we have seen, though, is a benefit in terms of browning. Browning is considered to be one of the major challenges for mozzarella on pizza in as much as we want it to retain its rather white 
appearance so that you get that contrast with the other ingredients. What we've seen so far is that actually in virtually all the trials we've done, we actually see an improvement or a reduction in the amount of browning on the pizza. Which is extremely important. I know speaking personally, I know that's pretty important because we have an eight-year-old who if it's if you can see the bits of cheese, then it's not cooked enough. But if it's brown, it's too cooked. Yeah. So you, you've got about eight seconds in in between that those two extremes where it's acceptable. So any decrease in browning is going to be a good thing, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. It's a kind of a, a side effect or a benefit side effect, if you like, of increasing the moisture content within the protein matrix. How challenging was it to develop these cultures and, and how do they complement your existing portfolio of products? The main challenge is, uh, challenge is finding bacterial strains that all have similar performance in terms of um, moisture retention so that we can have a range. I mean, it's all very well finding a strain that will will do that, but finding a, any number of strains to put together to create a phagen-related product is the challenging side. So we went through quite a large number of strains to find ones which would do what we wanted. So there was one Part of it was getting consistent moisture content between the rotations and um, the same pH profile so that they would behave exactly the same. The other side of it, which has always been a concern, particularly in a North American market, is the downstream whey processing. Some of these strains can produce very long chain polysaccharides, which can block the membranes uh, in the ultrafiltration and uh, the filtration systems that are used for separating out the whey components. So it's very important also that um, that it satisfies that need. So there's quite a lot of very specific requirements that, if you like, tests that the, the bugs have to pass before they, they win a chance to become on the shortlist um, uh, to be used. So it isn't something that um, is done overnight. It's something that's done with an awful lot of work to get there and that's why we're really so proud about this product range is that we've you know we've we've achieved this and um, got a very good consistency within the road or between the rotations and how will the acquisition of csk help in the things that you do yeah we're really excited to have csk as part of dsm they're the masters of mesophilic what i call mesophilic heterofermentative cultures and uh, and they have a fantastic knowledge of the continental cheese market and other other product groups that uh, that are involved in in these um, citrate fermenting cultures from a portfolio perspective it's a great marriage really and um, so we're looking forward to working closer and closer with them in that respect the other big advantage that we or the, the big benefit we have as a result of acquiring csk is that they do have a european manufacturing base for frozen direct to the vat cultures so it complements our american and australian manufacturing facilities so that we have if you like on the three three corners of the the world we have uh, manufacturing facilities for frozen cultures which obviously is great in terms of carbon footprint for our sales in europe and I suppose it also helps for them to have a bigger expanded market. Well, that's right. Yes. So the continental cheese market globally is is very big. And um, so this really gives us an opportunity to offer those products into that into that market. As I say, they have this great portfolio that we add to our own range. I mean, they have a good adjunct culture range as well. That's one of my big passions is working with adjunct cultures as well. So uh, 
for all sorts of things from flavour and texture and so on. So it's, it's good to have them on board. A few weeks ago, we had an interview with Ari Trisdahl, co-founder and CEO of Crisp, a company helping retailers in the US make decisions based on real-time inventory updates, and much more in the way of retail insight platforms online. In fact, it was so interesting that we invited him back onto the show to tell us more about Crisp's newest insight capabilities and some of the trends and a whole lot more, especially as a lot has changed over the space of a few weeks with respect to the coronavirus crisis. Okay, so could you give us a little bit of an update as to what's been happening at Crisp? Yeah, we so we launched uh, this week actually what we call the Crisp Data Platform, and it uh, it is this open cloud-based platform for the entire food industry, uh, where they can unify, get all of the data together in uh, one place, and uh, then run these uh, machine learning and data science related uh, kind of things on top of it for forecasting, understand customer segmentation, for instance, understand consumer demand, drill in on understanding sales and inventory levels, effect of promotions, marketing that happens, what, how does that affect sales, a lot around switching between products. So buying more of one type of yogurt, which ones are you now not buying anymore? So that's what we launched this week. Uh, we call it a crisp data platform. And how does that work in terms of the accessibility? Do you teach people how to use it? Is it pretty self-explanatory? Is it easy to use? Yeah, the, 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 we have put in place some incredibly easy to use uh, dashboards. So so that uh, you have an executive type of uh, or business dashboard where you can have one view on on everything that matters uh, for a company's sales or profitability, uh, how many stores are picking up the product, are these stores uh, out of stock? Do I need to follow up with uh, with the local or with the regional distribution center? Uh, so it gives a lot of insight and a lot of notifications and alerting around what's going on so that uh, the user can take actions based upon that. And how frequently is that updated? Yeah, it's updates in real time. Uh, the data sources don't always update in real time. So one big part of this is that we are able to pull data in from the big retailers and the big distributors uh, very seamlessly. So you just uh, connect into their portals or into their EDI systems, and then uh, it updates and kind of aggregates all of this data together in one place. Um, sometimes the retailers and distributors don't update their data in real time, but as soon as it is updated, we have it, and then we run these algorithms that we can do notifications and alert people that they should uh, take some actions. And you said this has just launched recently. Has there been uptake on it yet? And what kind of uh, feedback are you getting on it? Yeah, we officially launched, or officially kind of took the the, the, the wrap off the web page at least uh, yesterday. But it has been in market for about two months before that. And of our existing customers, uh, I think the number was 91% of our existing customers signed up for this product too. They had the forecasting product before, but now with these uh, additional, especially around the insight and executive dashboard, is something that they, uh, yeah, it's been like selling water in Sahara almost because they, 
it's something that everybody wants. Everybody wants to have this real-time insight in what's going on, especially in these days, because now there's so many consumer patterns that have shifted, and there's so much you can't really rely on last year's numbers and the, num the numbers from before having this real-time access to data and the pools of what's going on with the consumers out there uh, have, uh, always important, but especially now. And is that data derived from global sales? Yeah, it's from uh, particularly in, in the US and in Scandinavia is where we have the most amount of customers. So that's where we have the data currently, but the system itself works globally. So we have do have customers outside of those markets too, but we don't have as big of a penetration in other markets as we have uh, in, uh, in the US and in Scandinavia. And are you seeing differences as the, I mean, I think the last time that we talked, most countries were still very similar in terms of the way that they were operating because of the lockdown. But now Sweden didn't really do lockdown very much. Denmark's coming out of it more quickly. The UK, even within the UK, Scotland and England are treating it differently. How are those kind of emerging from lockdown? How, how are those changes being reflected? Yeah, from the numbers we see, the countries are uh, emerging differently, but the patterns in terms of uh, shopping, in terms of level of, of, of what you buy, uh, has started to come come down a lot and come back uh, to the levels it was before the outbreak. Uh, maybe slightly higher because you make more food at home and, uh, than before, but uh, in, in general, that those big peaks that we saw uh, are coming down, even in those markets where there's still, like US for instance, there's still uh, a lot of uh, kind of uncertainty around this, uh, but the shopping behavior is starting to get, people are have fully stocked at this point, you can't possibly be adding more spaghetti or more canned food in any person's home, so they have, I think everybody's starting to feel feel safe that they're not gonna, not gonna have any issues with that, so I think the shopping behavior is normalizing more in terms of a level, but we see a, do we see a big shift in what people are buying uh, now versus what they were buying before? And I noticed I just did an article today, Arla in Denmark is saying that they're starting to see a bit of a recovery in food service. How is, will that have an effect on retail? Yeah, it should, uh, should, should, it definitely should. We see that in Scandinavia as well, that they start, restaurants are more open uh, open again so people are more out and things are happening more so that's just definitely shifting the demand back to restaurants more but but there's a sustained higher level uh in retail uh, in the on the grocery retail side for sure and and do you think that uh, obviously people are starting to buy more online now do you think that will continue yeah i think that's the biggest uh, shift and the biggest trend uh, i guess it was depending on the market was 2%, 2 2.5%, 3%, 3.5%, 40%, right? So that jump up uh, in home delivery and e-commerce was so substantial. Um, and uh, it's not going to go back down to being 5.5%, uh, 6% again. I think it will go down to be 10%. So, so because people have realized that it is more convenient uh, and the, the products that I'm getting uh, have quality. So the uh, so I think more people have, so I think it's going to be a sustained higher level there as well. Do you think that this also introduces more opportunities for retailers to explore things that they might not have already done, such as deliveries or collection in store, that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the biggest thing that they're realizing is that 
the supply chain that's built for a store is very different than the supply chain that uh, they should have for uh, for e-commerce or for home delivery because now the store is being used as the warehouse in a way right so you that's where the pickers go into the store and then go up and down the aisles to see if they can find the product uh, and it comes back to this lack of accurate inventory systems um, and it's very hard to have an accurate inventory system at the store level because yeah because what we talked about before you can't send people to count everything and you ordered 100 and you got 95 or uh, an employee might have taken something or a customer might have taken something or they, the accuracy level uh, is not generally not there and because of that people can end up having a bad experience you order something a product you think was there the picker goes into the store to look for the product but it's actually not there and now they have to call or to find a way to have a replacement product or not deliver the product at all so i think the biggest realization uh, that we're seeing is that the supply chain that's supporting uh, home delivery needs a lot of overhaul in order for it to be efficient are you seeing shifts in what people are buying and and will that continue do you think yeah, during the search, the most uh, purchased dairy item was butter, right? But that has started to come back to more typical uh, typical rates. The refrigerated desserts did not have a big peak during the search, uh, other than kind of on the public holidays. And that's been back to normal again. Uh, so people are starting to be willing to splurge, to celebrate on things. So the dessert things are coming more up now, back to normal levels like ice cream and these things, but those are more seasonal, I think, and it's cheap items that are driven more by whether it's in stock and uh, if it's uh, sunny uh, outside. So those uh, we see all over the world when the sun comes out, that, uh, that, that peaks, similar to what it did in earlier years. And then in terms of liquid drinks, uh, comparing kind of liquid, dairy, iced coffee and fruit juice, there's been a clear increase in the demand for iced coffee. Uh, we see a lot of those type of dairy products that are gaining traction. Yeah, all this liquid dairy, so a tremendous increase in the day of the surges. Um, and they, they continue to be higher than the uh, average prior to the closure. Plant-based, has that increased as well? Plant-based has also increased. I think more people have tested it and tried it and uh, realized that uh, it's a good substitute. So that's actually one big topic and theme for us is that that, that there's a lot of people that have tested new things that they wouldn't have tested because it was out of stock. And that's true for for that particular category. It's also true for branded versus non-branded. So if as a consumer been been buying the same brand forever there was no reason for me to test something else but all of a sudden when things were out of stock I ended up testing and taking using uh, using other brands and realizing hey it's actually cheaper and it's the same quality so we're seeing also a sustained higher demand for these uh, products that are alternatives to the big brands and are you seeing everybody seems to be a little more concerned about health now are you seeing things like uh, like yogurts with probiotics and are you seeing that kind of rise as well yeah i think that was kind of on this nice growth even ahead of or before this uh, happened so there's also a, another factor in here which is uh, which is people's outlook outlook on their own economy and uh, which is also impacting kind of what type of products they buy in the store so uh, if there's a lot of, of optimism and po- positiveness then you tend to buy 
products are more expensive, right? And in these in, in these days, a lot of people don't don't have that outlook. Uh, and with that, that's also shifting towards more more protein uh, for the amount of uh, money I'm paying, right? To so be seeing a shift towards product that can give me more for less. So so I think that that's a balance to that uh, is that people want to be more healthy, but now it's uh, they have maybe a little bit a little bit less optimistic outlook on where the future is going. I think it's even more important than ever to understand segmentation and segments uh, and groups of people and what um, products that they are buying. I think uh, historically it's been seen as a big mass of people buying <laughs> buying it, but I think it's going to be very important to understand the different characteristics of the different segments within the market, uh, and particularly around the financial situation and what, how the shift in preferences happens then and when you're spurging, what are actually spurging on and what day does that happen on and what, is, and, but what are those stable products that, uh, that are cheaper and give a lot of you know, bang for the buck. So in terms of analysis from the, thing, the things that you're providing, it's not really just as it was a few years ago, just analyzing what people are buying. You're, you're now able to drill down much deeper into segments of what they buy and, and look at trends much more closely, I guess. Yeah, correct. We used the data science model and built something we call a switching uh, graph. So we can then model every price and every product and every uh, everything in the store and every category. Uh, and we can see if, see what product to switch to and switch from, basically. So it gives a lot of amazing insight into where are people indifferent. indifferent. So uh, if uh, switching from one product to other product, then it becomes more of a price uh, decision. For the retailer, it becomes more of a profitability uh, decision. They want the consumers. They see that it doesn't really matter for the consumer. Now the retailer would want them to buy the product they make the most uh, money on. And then, But then there are other categories where it's really hard for consumers to switch something else. And if they switch to something else, uh, we also modeling, do they then stay with that product over a period of time? And if they buy another product, what are the second, third, fourth product they actually put in their basket? And, and the com- combination of all of this, does that make it more uh, profitable and better for a retailer or for the for the food vendor that is selling into the retailers. And are you able to break it down by things such as demographic of the people that are buying it? So whether they're millennials or whether they're in the north of the U.S., are you able to break down even further? Yes. So that's what we're trying to do. That so that we take the, the switching graph and then see which of these segments are uh, how do they behave differently. And uh, what are the other products that they're buying? For instance, upon launching new products, you don't want to cannibalize your own products that you already have in the store, right? So you want to be able to take market share away from competitors, for instance. We work with a big dairy company now, and we did the analy- uh, we were analyzing it. We realized that they're only taking market share away from themselves, right? So every time you launch a new product, they're just switching from one of your other products. Um, and that's not what they want. So then um, they can start understanding now, how do I change my marketing? How do I change the product? How do I change them some, so that I can actually take uh, market share away from my, my competitor uh, instead? And as you said, then we map that up to this different types of segments that they believe that's more important for them. So yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff you can do with the data and, uh, and computers. So you're not just helping retailers, you're also helping the producers as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now they are getting access to this type of data that they, it's been a little bit of black box, I think, for a lot of the producers. Um, and they've been launching and doing marketing campaigns and sales outreach, but without getting a lot of feedback in terms of what works and doesn't work. So with our system, they are able to really understand and be much more specific in their actions versus broad. There's a lot of producers that are on the platform too. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that you can only look at trends for, for so long before it becomes a need to actually drill down and see what's actually selling. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of the room for improvement in the collaboration between a manufacturer uh, supplier into the retailers as well. So we're seeing that trend as well, that uh, they really want to collaborate better and understand each other's business better, share data better. Because everybody's kind of in the same boat. If the product is out of stock, then both parties lose. Uh, if the manufacturer put the wrong product on the shelf, both parties lose, uh, right? If the retailer is buying way too much product, that means that they have to send it back to the manufacturer or throw it out. Both parties lose. So I think there's a, there's a lot of big trend around collaboration. So as far as the future of Crisp, what's next? Is it just really building up the number of clients that you have? Yeah, it's really around uh, around building out a number of clients. And we've been very fortunate now. I think there was a big wake-up call. What happened in the last three months here was a big wake-up call for the entire industry. And companies needed to break open these uh, supply chains that they haven't touched in 30 years. Um, just assumed everything worked uh, in there. And now realized that there's a lot of missing data and missing technology and missing collaboration that they need to do uh, something with. So now so we've seen kind of uh, an incredible demand for the for the products. Obviously, it's horrible that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I think it's shown the value of products like yours and the value of data from the retailer's point of view and also from producers. Yeah, it is. It's and it's all for a good, better, better, uh, better cause for everybody because. If there's less food waste and there's less uh, oversupply or uh, if uh, everything becomes more efficient, consumer prices should theoretically drop. Profits for everybody in the value chain should theoretically go up if it's more, things are more efficient. Production should be more in sync with what consumers uh, want. So that's better for, for everybody. So it's one of those unique you know, opportunities where everybody wins, basically. There's nobody, there's no losers. Uh, everybody wins applying more modern technology. And as you just mentioned, their food waste, clearly the environment is massively important at the moment. And if companies are becoming more efficient, then maybe their shipping improves and there's less pollution because of that. Yeah, we just saw this report from the UN that identified food waste as a number one initiative uh, to reduce climate uh, gases because there's a lot, a lot that goes into producing the food, obviously, and as you said, Jim, shipping it and transporting it around. And uh, in the U.S., 20% of the landfills in the U.S. Uh, is rotting food. So it's um, we spend a lot of energy to get the food into the landfill, basically. And now it's also emitting climate gases while it's in the landfill. So now it's like you know, a triple triple whammy, uh, which, is, uh, which is what we want to avoid, obviously. And then with the population growth, that's going to double in the next 30 years. Uh, we can't afford to have a lot of food waste. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. 
this week uh, saw butter and skim milk powder uh, drop in prices uh, across the, the curve. It seems counterintuitive as as here in Europe we continue to get to grips with the coronavirus and the economy start to open up. We've seen prices uh, come down, whereas when uh, the crisis seemed to be getting worse and we were seeing more lockdown, prices uh, seemed to find support and, and rally somewhat. So this week we saw quarter three butter uh, come down about 100, 120 euros to around the 33.20 level. Quarter four was maybe off not quite as much, about 50, 60 euros to the 34.20 level. Then quarter one was down around uh, 100 euros to the 34.20.25 level. And quarter two was down around, uh, of 2021, was down around 40 euros to 3,500. Skimmel powder, as I say, followed the path of butter and, and, and was also softer. We saw quarter three trading around 2140, which was down about 100 euros from last week. Quarter four, 2020, was down about 100 euros as well to the 2180 level. And uh, quarter one of 2021 uh, was down to 2220 level, uh, which is down around 80 euros on the week. Quarter two was off around the same uh, amount uh, to 2280 level. Uh, Hui um, was trading still around the 750 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another show. More and more things opening up every week from restaurants to more sports. As long as we're all sensible about it, that is. And we don't want that all important R number to creep up again. But I hope you're able to do a little more this week than last, as long as that involves listening to the podcast. Next week, we already have two interviews done with DuPont and with ADM. And by tomorrow, there will be two more with Wisps and UK retailer Waitrose. And beyond that, there are already six more interviews scheduled. Or maybe it's seven. Perhaps the podcast needs to be daily, although maybe not for the sanity of all of us. But it does prove one thing, and that's the resilience of the food industry, because after all, it is essential to eat. Speaking of which, if you just heard an earthquake sound in the background, that was in fact my stomach, so obviously it's telling me to eat, as it does several times a day. The joys of working from home. I just wonder if my office chair can handle another 30 pounds or 15 kilos. Anyway, I hope you have a good week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.